Good morning, y'all. Thanks for uh, joining with us this morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, part of our teaching team. And today is part three of what's been a three-part series through the back half of Ephesians 2 and the front part of Ephesians 3. That's because we're part of a larger series that we're doing over the uh, 10 months or so, first 10 months of this year, just going through the book of Ephesians. And so uh, today is part three. So if you haven't been with us, you will want to go back. Uh, and look at uh, parts one and parts two from the last few weeks. Those are on our podcast, so videos are on our website. Uh, today's really kind of part three where we are looking at a new portion of scripture, uh, the first part of Ephesians 3, but we're also kind of concluding the things that we've been talking about over these weeks. And we began a few weeks ago essentially saying that there are these values that have come into Western culture through Christianity, values of love, values of inclusion, values that everybody is equal, uh, values that individual human rights matter, those things came into the world through Christianity. And even as our Western culture is increasingly post-Christian, where they're leaving Christianity behind, they're still wanting to hold on to some of those values. The way we said it was that uh, culture at large wants the kingdom without the king. They want all the benefits that Christianity brings without having the cost of submitting to Jesus as king. Now, the other temptation that we said is a temptation for the church, for Christians who might just want the king without the kingdom, who might just think about Christianity only being about me and God and the kind of vertical dynamic and not thinking about the implications of what it means for loving our neighbor, for impacting our families, for impacting our communities, for impacting even society and culture as a whole. And so if we lose the king, we lose the gospel. If we lose the kingdom, we lose the gospel. These two things go together, the king and the kingdom. And specifically what we've been looking at in these last two weeks uh, from there is the, is the idea of ethnic racial unity in the church. And that came about because in the book of Ephesians here, what's happening is this Ephesian church is made up of people from different ethnic cultural backgrounds. It's a church comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Get this, in the first century, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. They did not get along. There were all sorts of barriers, uh, cultural barriers, even physical barriers. There was a barrier at the Jewish temple keeping the Gentiles kind of at arm's length. And so there was very much significant hostility. And now what's happened is Jews have seen, oh, Jesus is really the king. He's brought a new kingdom. Gentiles are seeing, oh, wow, there's this, there's this King Jesus, this person that I love and I trust. And the, the Jews and the Gentiles are now forming into one new community in the church. Well, you know this, don't you? When people from different cultures get together, it's challenging. Anybody married? Right, that's what it is. It's not just the com combining of two individual people. It's, in a sense, combining two family cultures, two family dynamics. And the working together of that can be, can be really tricky. Well, that's kind of what's happening in the church in Ephesus. And Paul is writing this letter not just to tell them about how they can be reconciled to God, that they were sinners and that through faith in Christ they can experience salvation, but that this, this new reality of the kingdom of God, of salvation, also brings them together. It's fascinating that Paul does not say, hey, on the basis of this, I know your cultures are so different. Jews, why don't you start a Jewish church? Gentiles, why don't you start a Gentile church? He says, no, you're one new people. You're one new community. And, and how did that happen? Well, it happened through Jesus creating it. That's what we looked at the first week. How did Jesus create it? He created it by his blood. 
said this in chapter 2, verse 13. If you have your Bible, you can look at it. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus has created one new man, one new people. That's what it says in verse 14. He made us both one. In verse 15, look at what it says there. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Look at verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So Jesus is the one who brought about ethnic racial unity in the church. And obviously, Paul here is talking about Jews and Gentiles, but we could say as the people of God that this is a principle that applies to all peoples. Because everywhere there's a church, there's people from different cultures and different backgrounds coming together and worshiping Jesus. So how did Jesus create it? By his blood through his cross. The thing we looked at last week was why does this matter so much? We not only looked at this particular passage talking about how we're the holy temple in the Lord, we're now the dwelling place of God is what it says at the end of chapter 2, but we zoomed out and we looked at some biblical reasons, we looked at some missional reasons, we looked at some reasons just in our congregation why it matters for us here now in 2018 to be also pursuing ethnic racial unity here in our church. And today we're going to ask the question, what does this mean for us, specifically at Gateway? What would it look like, given who's here, given the community we're in, given this moment that we're in together, what would it look like for us as a local congregation to pursue the kind of ethnic racial unity that Paul's talking about, but in our church? That's some of what we're going to dive into today. But before we really try to answer that question, I want to pray, and then I want to dive into this particular part of the text. So let's pray together. Father, we invite you now to speak. We want to have ears and hearts that are attentive, that we would hear your voice through your word. God, we don't want to be those who uh, just have itching ears and seek to get them scratched wherever they'll be scratched, but we actually invite you to challenge us by your word, by your spirit. You're God, we're not. You know what, what, what we need far better than we do, so would you speak to us? Give us the courage to do what you say. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Before we answer that big question, I want to spend some time just in this particular text. If you have your Bible, Ephesians 3 is what we read just a moment ago. And it's interesting because when you look at this, Paul is actually ready to move on to something else, and then he stops himself and keeps talking about the same thing. Look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then you see the dash there. And he interrupts himself. And then he talks until verse 13. And then look at how he starts verse 14. For this reason, like back, back to what I was saying. <laughs> you get it, verse 1, he goes, for this reason. Wait a minute, I'm not ready to talk about that yet. Verse 14, for this reason. So he keeps interrupting himself. And what he interrupts himself to talk about in these first six verses is this mystery. The mystery, do you see it there? How the, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to be my revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This mystery, verse 6, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Paul uses the word mystery in the book of Ephesians more than any other book that he writes. He uses it over and over. And, and mystery, the, the, the Greek word that Paul's using here is different than how we think about mystery. We think of mystery being like a riddle that we have to somehow solve. 
In, in Paul's language, what this mystery is, is, a, is something that has to be revealed to you. You can't really go solve it. It has to be shown to you. And he uses it all over. In chapter 1, he talked about the mystery of his will, of God's will, which was that heaven and earth were going to be united together. Then he describes what that might look like in a sinner's life in chapter 2, as you have God and man as enemies of one another, and yet God in his grace brings God and man together into union. Then here in chapter 3, he's talking about God bringing these things together that don't normally go together, Gentiles and Jews. In verse 6, members of the same body. He's going to use the same word actually in chapter 5 describing marriage. How marriage is the coming together of a man and a woman. But he's going to say this mystery is actually about Christ and the church. And he's going to pray in chapter 6 that God would give him the ability to declare the mystery. So what's the mystery? Well, the mystery to Paul is when these different kinds of things come together. Heaven and earth comes together. God and sinner come together. Jew and Gentile come together. Man and woman come together. That's the mystery that he's talking about. And specifically, the way this gets fleshed out, given what he's been talking about, is in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That means they're also re recipients of this. They're not lesser Right? An, an heir is someone who's inheriting something. They don't, they don't get a kind of junior inheritance. No, they're fellow heirs, full status. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, Paul's just reiterating what he's been saying, which is that Jews and Gentiles who normally off, operate in this very much class, ethnicity, structure, are now one man, one humanity, one body is the language he uses here. Members of the same body. Now, this idea of a body, this is an interesting thing. Paul describes this in other parts of the scripture where he basically says that the church is like a body. If you're new to Christianity or new to our church, some people, sometimes you'll hear people talk about, oh, the body. I just really love the body. And you're like, are they like workout people? Or like, what are they talking about? Or they just go, I just want to do whatever it is that I can do to help the body. What are they talking about? They're talking about the church. Because the scripture describes the church as a body made up of different parts, different members, with our head being Jesus. He fleshes this out in 1 Corinthians 12. If you have a Bible, it's worth actually turning back there to, to look at this section for a moment. Because here we get a, an insight into what Paul means when he talks about us being a new body. In 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12... He explains this analogy. Now, the context of chapter 12 is spiritual gifts in general and the differences and the value of different gifts. But as we're going to see here, it's not just the different gifts, but all the different kinds of differences that compose the beauty of Christ's body. Look at what it says in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So what is our unity? Our unity is that we're one in spirit. We've been baptized into one body. We've, we've experienced one father, one Lord, one baptism. That's what makes us one. And then look at how he fleshes out this analogy. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, 
That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? Right? This is kind of, you're, you're, it's allowed to chuckle, right? You just picture one big eye. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged, get this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So what Paul's saying up to this point is he's saying, listen, there's these parts of the body that might feel like lesser parts. They might feel like they're not as important. Well, if I'm a foot, I'm not, well, but I'm not a hand, you know, a hand seems more important than a foot. Yeah, unless you don't have a foot. And so these, these parts of the body that could be perceived as weaker or more kind of on the outskirts, less on the in crowd, their temptation is going to be to say, I don't belong here. I don't belong to this. I, I don't have anything to add. I don't have any real value. This thing's going on without. I, I, don't, I don't belong. That's going to be the temptation for them. Now, there's another temptation for the parts of the body that maybe seem more prominent or seem more important. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. So get this, the parts of the body, the parts of the church who are maybe perceived as weaker or perceived as less influential, their temptation is going to be to say, well, I don't belong here. I don't belong. And the temptation of the more prominent parts of the body that seem more important is going to be to say, well, I don't really need you. I don't need you. Paul says, no, no, no. Neither one of those are okay. Those of you in this church who feel underrepresented for whatever reason, maybe it's age, maybe it's economic status, maybe it's race, maybe it's something else, maybe it's your family situation, whatever it is, you, you, please, please, whatever it is, don't say, well, I don't belong here. And any of us that are part of this church, that are part of whatever the dominant culture is in this church, the majority culture in this church, please, 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 don't look at people different than that. Again, by age or by economics or by family situation or by race or anything else and say, wow, we don't really need you. No, what Paul says is we all matter. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Notice also, get this, he doesn't say there's no differences. He doesn't say, well, just be body part blind. He says, no, there are different parts. There's different realities. There's different backgrounds. But that's not the main thing. That's not the trump card. That's not the thing that rallies and holds us together. The thing that rallies and holds us together is Jesus. One spirit, one Lord, one baptism. Look at what he says then, how he concludes this paragraph in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, 
all rejoice together. That's Paul's vision for what it is to be one body. If one part of the body is suffering, we all suffer. If one part of the body is rejoicing, we all rejoice. Now, this confronts just our kind of Western individualism that we're all very comfortable with, which is to say, well, I, it's just, I'm responsible for my stuff, and if I'm suffering, I'm suffering, and if you're suffering, I'm sorry, but I'm not really suffering, it's you. And if, if you're rejoicing, hey, good for you, but I'm going to come over here and wish that I could rejoice like you. Paul says that's not how the body should work. The body should work that when we're suffering, we're all suffering. When we're rejoicing, we're all rejoicing, which here's what that means. That means the church is always, at all times, suffering and rejoicing. Because at all times, parts of the body are suffering and rejoicing. We are to be a people comfortable with lament and comfortable with celebration because that's who we are. Because it's not just about me, it's about us as the body of Christ. Do you get Paul's vision? So how does this begin to shape, if this is Paul's vision, one body, same body, one new man, reconciled in one body, that's all of his language of Ephesians 2 and 3, what would ethnic racial unity look like at Gateway? What would that look like here? Now, what I want to share with you are mostly going to be about mindset and attitude shifts. That's mostly what I want to challenge and what I want to encourage and what I want to exhort. That's what I want for me. That's what I want from my family and my kids. That's what I want from us as a church is mostly to think through, okay, if we're going to pursue ethnic racial unity, we're not in the same situation that Paul was in in Ephesus. We're not the same situation that a church might be in Tempe or might be in Apache Junction or might be in Tucson or Topeka, Kansas. Or <laughs> We're in a different place. What would this look like for us? And for us, I think it's going to look a lot like a mindset and an attitude shift. But I've prayed through and shared with a number of people, bounced this off a number of folks, four things that I think this would look like for us at Gateway to pursue ethnic racial unity. First one would be this. It would be to pray for a congregation as diverse as our community. To pray for a congregation as diverse as our community. This, I think, really matters because if we're going to be a church that really reaches this community that we're in, then we need to try to and pray for the ability to look like the community we're in. I mean, that just makes sense. Not more diverse than the community that we're in necessarily, though that could be cool, and not less diverse. Now, here's what our community looks like. I've done a lot of different demographic research about this, kind of trying to go, okay, what's a 15 to 20 minute radius? around our congregation look like, specifically related to ethnicity and race, since that's kind of what we're talking about, is this ethnic-cultural divide in the Jew and Gentile. In our case, it, it's a little bit different. So here's kind of the breakdown of our community as it relates to this. 15-minute uh, radius of this building is about 81, depending on the stats you look at, about 81 to 83% white, about 14 to 17% Hispanic Latino, about 3 to 6% black, and about 2 to 5% Asian. Now, if you're adding that, you go, that is more than 100. <laughs> it is more than 100, and one of the reasons that complicates it is uh, you can be Hispanic and also white. You can be Hispanic and also black. The Hispanic demographics make this a little bit more challenging to figure out exactly what that looks like. Now, in our particular congregation, we're about 88% white. So get this, we're not too far away from our community. 
That's great. That's wonderful. As I look over these last years, I see more and more uh, diversity of all different kinds, race, age, stage, economics, all sorts of things. I think that will only continue as our church uh, grows and moves into a new building. I think that's a wonderful thing. And so I don't know what you do about this other than pray. That's why I said just pray. Pray, Lord, could we be as diverse as our community? Could be a place where Anybody could feel welcome here, could feel like they were part of it. It's interesting, in talking to a number of families um, who are mixed race or minority race families in our church, this is actually a more meaningful thing than you might think. And what a lot of people said is, I'd love for my kids to be able to be around some other kids at church that kind of look like them. And you may, if you're white, go, I don't get it. You've never had to. You've never had to get it. You've never, it's never crossed your mind because it's never needed to. And that, you don't have to feel bad about that. Just know like that's, that's a more meaningful thing maybe than, than you'd think. And so it, it does matter that we would have diversity. But get this, get this, this is big. Paul is not writing about diversity because they already have it in Ephesus. He's writing about unity. Right? Diversity does not necessarily equal unity. Right? They already had diversity in Ephesus. What they didn't have was unity. This is some of what we've seen at some of our congregations across redemption. We're one of 10 congregations, and a number of these other congregations are far more multi-ethnic than we are and should be because they're in far more multi-ethnic communities than we are. And what they've seen is, especially over the last few years, as a lot of cultural tensions have, have risen around race issues, what they've said is, we thought we were multi-ethnic because we were diverse, but what we actually realized is we were diverse but not unified. And all these cultural issues started popping up and we started going, oh my gosh, we ha- yeah, we have a lot of different kinds of people, but they don't really like each other very much. And so diversity doesn't necessarily equal unity. Here's what the pastor, uh, one of the pastors at Alhambra, Aaron Daly, he's preached here before, he had a great analogy. He said what we've realized in the last few years is that unity is structural work. Diversity is cosmetic work. So unity is structural. Think about it from like a construction standpoint. You're tearing down a wall, you're building a new kitchen island, you're installing new new cabinets, you're, you're doing new structural things in the house. Diversity could just be kind of painting the walls a different color or rearranging a, a, a painting right? Both can be great. Both can make a house more beautiful. That's wonderful. But what he said is that unity is structural work, not cosmetic. And structural work takes longer, costs more, involves loss, and it hurts a lot along the way. That's why what I'm going to exhort us to here is mostly about mindset and attitude shifts, because that's the structural work. That's the heart work that's going to enable there to be unity regardless of how diverse any particular church is. So let's pray for a congregation as diverse as our community. I want to do that right now. Father, we don't want to just talk about a prayer. We want to pray to you. And God, I do pray that you would allow our congregation to, over time, in ways that are appropriate, look as diverse as our community does. When we think about race and we think about age and we think about family background and we think about religious background, God, we would love to be a representative of what that community looks like to show 
the rest of our community that no matter where someone comes from, no matter what background they, they have, there's a place here for them and there's a home for them in Christ. God, help us to be ready for that. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, number two, what would ethnic racial unity at Gateway look like? It would look like being a James 119 people. It would look like being a James 119 people all the time, but especially when big moments happen out in culture, when cultural things happen that start to make you ask questions and what's your view on this and how do you think of that? What if we could be a James 119 people? You go, I don't know what James 119 is. Okay, well, you're gonna. Here we go. Here's James 119. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I think we need some, some participation on this, all right? So when you get to the bold part, you're going to read along with me. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Let's do it again. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I don't know if you can find a verse that is more countercultural to our world, right? I mean, we are slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to be angry. What would ethnic, racial, or any other kind of unity look like at Gateway? It would look like being a James 119 people, listening, composing our thoughts carefully, quietly, seeing other people do things that might be insensitive or might even be wrong and still saying, I'm going to be slow to be angry. Listen, those of us who are fathers of Christ, we're the people of God. We're the body of Christ. We are to be different, aren't we? We would say, yes, we don't want to look like the world. Yes, we want to look like Jesus. Okay, can we do it here? Slow to speak. Slow to anger, quick to hear. We've been talking over the last few months about how we're pink spoon people. There's this kingdom of God ice cream, and we are digging in with our little sample spoon, and we're offering the world a pink spoon, a little sample. What's in your sample? Is it, I don't want to hear anything. I'm just mad. I haven't thought about it. But here's what I think. <laughs> Anybody can do that, right? And, and when the church does that, it is not only unbecoming of a watching world, but it, it hurts our unity. Because unity happens when we listen to each other, when we speak thoughtfully, when we're forgiving, when we bear one another's pains and burdens. And even when people offend us, we, we're long-suffering with them. You get this? This is what it would look like. How, how, how do you do that? Well, you have to lean into Jesus. Jesus constantly, what did he do? He gave up his rights. And he laid them aside to humble himself and to serve and to suffer and to die. Do you have the right to an opinion? Sure. 
Do you have the, the right to get angry? I, I guess. Do you want to? Do you, that what you, that's not what you want. You're a follower of Christ. You're part of his body. Be a James 1.19 person. Number three, ethnic racial unity at Gateway would look like being less discipled by media and more discipled by Jesus. Listen, you're being discipled. I am, all of us, all the time, we are being discipled. We're being discipled by what we listen to, by how we experience it, by who we spend time with. And to be an ethnically, racially unified church at Gateway, we need to be less discipled by media and more discipled by Jesus. If you are discipled by the kinds of people who go to the Oscars, you're going to think, that everything is just about identity groups and everybody's a victim and, and all that matters is race. If you listen to that, that that's going to disciple you. You're going to think it's more important than it is. And if what you're mostly discipled by is conservative media, I'd say conservative you know, like art, but there isn't any. You're not allowed to do art if you're conservative, so you just have to do like talking shows. <laughs> So if you're discipled by that, you're going to think, this stuff doesn't matter at all. This is all just overblown by the Hollywood elites and blah, blah, blah. And come on. I mean, like, who even really cares? We had a black president, for goodness sakes. What more do you want? Listen, no matter what side of that you're talking about, here's what you're talking about. You're talking about being discipled by the culture and not by Jesus. Talked to a guy in our church who said, I was part of a men's group and not a single week went by that a major part of the conversation wasn't about gun control and the flag and the White House and what the latest on foreign policy is. Now get this. We do believe that all of life is all for Jesus. So the scripture does have something to say about all those things. But here's a person, part of our church, saying, I come to the church... And I come to a men's group with the church, and what I mostly hear about is that stuff. He's going, this is a discipleship group, and you know who's discipling all the people in that group? Media. The, the only people who really get mad at me and our other preachers about being too political are people who immerse themselves constantly in political stuff. And I go, well, who's, who's too political? You listen for eight hours a day to talk radio, and I'm too political. <laughs> what if we were discipled less by media and more by Jesus? What if the kingdom of God, what if the scriptures, what if the Sermon on the Mount, what if the New Testament, what if God's vision for justice and love of neighbor in the Old Testament, what if that's what shaped us? Number four, ethnic racial unity would look like a mind and heart shift toward greater awareness, which I think would then lead to greater love. A mind and heart shift toward greater awareness of love. And so what I want to do for the next few moments is share with you, I think, the kind of six phases that I've been going through related to this, that I, as I see a lot of people kind of try to grow in their awareness and their love of people from different backgrounds, here's the kind of six shifts that I sort of see, or not six shifts, but six places to shift to. 
And so the first one is this. The first one is you're just oblivious. This is maybe where a lot of us are, where we don't really see a problem. Think about this ethnicity, race stuff. We go, gosh, I don't, I don't is, there, is there a problem? Does he see a problem? Because he seems all worked up about this, but I don't see a problem. Like, this all seems fine to me. Seems fine to you? Yeah, it seems fine to me. Like, it seems fine. And what happens when you're oblivious is you will sometimes be offensive out of just ignorance. Because you're oblivious. It's literally a blind spot. Here's an example for me. I, a number of years ago, was leading our church uh, pastoring and church planting residency as part of Redemption Church. And so we had about a half dozen guys who were thinking about doing pastoral ministry or church planting ministry. And one of the things that we did is we spent about four or five days uh, where we did a church tour around our city. We met with different leaders and we'd ask them questions. We went to as many different services and different things as we could. I think all total in about four days, we had contact with seven or eight churches because I was saying, you know what? Here's these leaders uh, that we want to shape them with a real diversity of kind of thought and input and way things way people do stuff. Not everybody does it the same. And so we went to a lot of different churches. And at the end of the process, one of the guys in that group, Warren Stewart, some of you know him. He pastors Church of the Remnant now that he planted. Our churches help support him. He said to me, um, how come we only went to white churches? I said, uh, oh my gosh. Uh, here was my defense. It never crossed my mind. And he said, yeah, exactly. You really went out of your way. Like he said, I appreciate it. You went out of your way to see, help us see lots of different kinds of ways of doing church. But what about a, going to a Chinese church? Or what about going to a Korean church? Or what about going to a predominantly black church? Like, well, why didn't I do that? Because I was oblivious. I didn't go, you know what? I think the only churches that matter are white churches. No, I just, it never crossed my mind. So I was oblivious. And I was thankful that he pointed that out. We can be oblivious here at Redemption Gateway. I've, I've talked and I've heard from a number of people in our church. I heard from one person. They've adopted a son who looks different from them. And people in this church have asked with him standing there, where did you get him? Like he's a puppy. There's some people in our church that fluent in Spanish, and one day we're just around the church speaking to each other in Spanish, and someone walked by and said, hey, hey, English only, please. They were probably kidding. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. They were probably just joking around, but that's oblivious. I've had people in our church of Asian descent have people say to him, wow, your English is so good. Where did you learn it? Arizona. <laughs> listen, listen. That's in our church. That's in these walls. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that the people who did those things probably had any idea how what they were saying would come across. And that's the problem. So we start by being oblivious. Something brings this to our attention. And we move to probably, at least this is where I've gone, defensive. That's the second place. Defensive. I'm upset at the thought or the implication 
that I might be judged or perceived as prejudiced or racist. Even the thought of that is horrifying. Now, here's why. This is what's so interesting. There is hardly anything in our broader culture that you could be accused of that would be worse than being racist. Maybe child predator. You're like, listen, I murdered somebody, but I am not racist. I, I am a huge embezzler of money, but I'm not racist, right? Because racist is like the worst. It's the death sentence. And so because it's so charged that way, any implication that I might be prejudiced or that I might have done something, even if it's out of ignorance, I just get defensive. I get, I get angry. This is how I felt over the last number of years. As a number of times as pastor, as a pastor, I've gone to things where I've heard people talk about being a multi-ethnic church. I'm going, I'm in a community that's mostly white. What do you want me to do? And I, just, and I feel really angry. Why? Because after you're oblivious, you see the blind spot and you go, oh, I don't like this. I'm angry. I'm offensive. Then you move to a place of being paralyzed. I'd just rather sit it out. I'm going to get crushed for saying the wrong thing. Everybody's super sensitive. I remember after all this stuff was going on uh, a couple years ago where there had been a shooting in Minneapolis and then a shooting in Baton Rouge and then the police in Dallas and there had just been this wave, it felt like, month after month of these different shootings and lots of racial questions. And I remember feeling just so stuck because on one hand, people were saying, listen, if you're a white pastor, you need to just shut up and listen. Just listen to the experience of people of color. I go, okay. And then on the other hand, they go, if you're a white pastor, your silence is deafening. Uh, what do I do? Do I shut up and listen or do I speak up? Uh, I don't know. I just, never mind. I'm out. Maybe this is where you're at, even right now. You go, I, just, I, I, I don't know what to do. I'll probably say the wrong thing. I just won't say anything. I won't think about it. I'll just check out. Now, that's an understandable feeling. But I want to encourage you not to stay there. The other thing you might feel in this paralyzed kind of moment is, okay, I know this matters. How do I fix it? This is something I asked a number of my friends who come from minority backgrounds as I was feeling this. Well, what do you want me to do? How do I? Like, I'd love to fix all the problems in society. I'd love to fix the lack of unity in the church. What do you want me to do? How can I fix it? And they would say to me, this was great. What made you ever think you could fix it? I said, we've never assumed we could fix it. Maybe the reason you think you can fix it is because you're used to being in a position of power that's always able to fix it. I've never thought I could fix it. I just pray. We stick together. What made you think you could fix it? So we start out oblivious and defensive and paralyzed, but I think there can be a shift. And this is the shift that I want to encourage us toward is to move to this next set, this next wave of reacting to these things, is moving from being oblivious and defensive and paralyzed to next being a learner. When you're a learner, you're asking honest questions. You're listening to input, and you are open to receiving critique. So you know what? I'm going to put myself in a position to just learn, to just listen, to ask questions. 
Maybe this is through books and podcasts and exposing yourself to other media from other voices that can be helpful on these issues. Maybe it's having conversations with friends. Here's some of how it's worked for me. The first time that I really kind of saw some of this stuff was, I don't know when it was, four or five, six years ago, maybe even now, when there was the whole trial about George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. Some of you remember that? Trayvon Martin had been this uh, unarmed 17-year-old black teenager out for a walk. George Zimmerman was doing this neighborhood patrol. The accounts differed on did Trayvon Martin attack him or did he not, but whatever happened, George Zimmerman ended up shooting him and claiming self-defense. And I happened to be on vacation during the George Zimmerman trial. And I had just a few months before that been on a jury. So I spent like my whole vacation watching the George Zimmerman trial. I was just so interested in it. And my family was like, Daddy, we miss you. And I'm like, be quiet, this is important testimony. And I'm watching the George Zimmerman trial, and in my mind, I'm watching it, and I've, I've watched, and I've watched by this point, like, most of the trial. I've seen the witnesses, I've seen the evidence, like, I'm playing armchair jurist at home, right? And I'm going, this really stinks that this kid was killed. Like, nobody's arguing this is a good thing, but I'm watching, I'm going, the evidence just seems so obvious that Zimmerman acted in self-defense. Like, duh. But every person of color that would come on TV would say, well, clearly George Zimmerman did not act in self-defense. When I would talk to people about the case, they'd say, well, clearly George Zimmerman was off on it. And, and so I go on. Maybe it isn't clear. Because I'm going, well, clearly. And they're going, well, Clearly. And so I called up a number of my friends, and I said, I, you know, I, I'm not asking you to speak for every black person, but could you help me understand this? Because to me, this seems so obvious, and to a lot of the commentators I'm seeing that come from a black or Hispanic background, they're going, well, totally the different thing. And those conversations were really helpful to hear that feedback and to hear that input and to say, well, here might be why some people are looking at it a little differently. After some of these same shootings, a friend of mine who's a pastor said, and he's an African-American that pastors a predominantly white church, he said, I just don't want to go to my church this Sunday because I don't feel like most of them will get how I feel. A learner says, wow, tell me more about that. See, what we want to do when we hear things that we don't agree with or that we don't understand is we want to say, well, that's stupid. A learner says, tell me why. Why do you feel like that? Help me understand. And so what I'm calling us to is not to come to a position on who was right, Zimmerman or Trayvon. That's not the point. The point is when you encounter people who come from a really different perspective than you, listen. When you encounter a police officer, you might want to say, what's that like right now? That, is really, that sounds really hard to be a police officer in this charged climate. What's it like to be a person who's often overlooked? You might want to ask, depending on your background, hey, what's it like to be a middle-aged white guy who's unpromotable now? I mean, this learning goes all directions. But it's taking a posture of learning, taking a posture of asking why. That's a... That, Get this, by the way, that's a posture of humility and love, isn't it? Here's the fifth shift, is you become aware. 
You become comfortable discussing race. You're able to see interpersonal racism and structural racism. This is not like the thing that you can't talk about anymore because it's so afraid. You just kind of become aware of this. Yes, I see this. I don't see it behind every corner, but I see the dynamics that are here. I see how race has impacted society. I see how race impacts relationships. I, I just have some awareness there. To be there, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And you have to be comfortable not having answers. If you need all the answers, you won't live here. You will retreat up to the top where you can easily answer everything. Awareness of this kind is tense. And finally, you move toward being an advocate, using whatever influence you have to encourage greater, greater unity, justice, and equality. Doesn't mean you're out to solve the world's ills. Doesn't mean that you think you can fix it. But you say, whatever influence I have, I'm going I'm to use it. I'm going to be an advocate. Jesus was an advocate for me. When I was in a position of weakness, Jesus was strong for me. I'll try to do that for other people. Now, here's what this process requires. It requires relationships. You probably won't make this process unless you're doing it with people who are different from you or at least input from people who are different from you. So it requires relationships. It requires grace and truth. It requires the truth for someone to be able to say, hey, when you do that, it hurts. You probably don't even know it, but it hurts. It also requires grace because you need to be in an environment where you can ask dumb questions. It's one of the things I love. There's this woman in my seminary class. I'm her token white conservative friend. Right, she called me up and go, can you explain Sean Hannity to me? I go, yes, I can. Let me explain. Right, and I ask her a question. So it's... It, and I have permission with her to go, hey, can I ask you a question that's probably stupid and offensive? And you'll give me grace and truth about it. She'll go, yeah. That's so valuable. So it's relationships, it's grace plus grace and truth, and it's time. It's time. Now, let me ask you, how do any of us grow in anything? Relationships, grace and truth, and time. This same cycle, this is what it looks like if you're dealing with anger, right? You're oblivious to it. Someone points it out. You're defensive and angry. Then you're paralyzed. You're like, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. My reactions are all wrong. And you start adopting a posture of learning and you go, okay, I'm aware of this. And now I'm going to actually advocate and encourage other people to control their emotions, right? This is how it works to grow. That's what this same process is. I'm just applying it to ethnic and racial unity. In conclusion, what we see in this whole section is that Jesus moved toward us. Jesus unites us. Jesus brings us together, and he does it by laying himself down. And we will have unity in our congregation, in Redemption Church as a whole, in the body of Christ as a whole movement to the degree that we move toward Jesus and move toward one another in sacrificial love. That's what this is about. That's what unity looks like. It looks like moving toward one another, motivated by Christ, sacrificial love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and how you use it to shape us. God, I know that there are parts of what we've talked about today that are challenging for us to hear, and we may even hear it and find ourselves in that flow. God, I'm thankful for the way that you've used relationships and used people and how you continue to do it because I keep 
I keep starting the process over. I keep finding new things I was oblivious about and beginning again. And God, thank you for grace. Thank you for relationships. Thank you for love. Thank you for people who don't have a posture of harshness and judgment, but have a heart of James 119 that they're quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Would that be us, Lord? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.